That passage begs a number of questions, and we'll ask some of them. Who is Athalic? And why did he come out to fight? Malik was a distant cousin of uh, these Israelites. The man Amalek is, the, is a descendant of, uh, was a descendant of Abraham and was the grandson of Esau. And these Amalek uh, are his descendants who were a bunch of nomads who roamed around the northern part of the desert wilderness and up into the southern part of Palestine at that time. It's not known why they attacked Israel. Nobody knows. It might have had to do with the fact that they had found water uh, there at Nephilim. And and, and water, of course, is precious in that part of the world, in the desert. You need water. So maybe they wanted to take over that well uh, in, in the water. Or it may be that they feared that the Israelites would, uh, would take control of the route there. It was a caravan route. And, and they, had, they had pretty much uh, held sway over that route for generations. And so perhaps they, they feared that. Or maybe it was a combination of the two. Or maybe it's one of the other 8 or 10 or 12 uh, you know, ideas that people have come up with over the years about why they may have uh, attacked Israel. What is known in, in Phil Reichen's term is their attack is cowardly. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses is telling the people, he said, now remember Amalek. Remember as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, in other words, the stragglers, the women, the children, the old, uh, the weak, those people, and he did not fear God. It was a cowardly act, and uh, we know that much. Well then, question number two, in verse nine, why tomorrow? Tomorrow I'll go up on the hill. Uh, Peter ends in his commentaries written, because that's the time in which God will act against Israel's enemies. And he references the plagues. And if you remember in the plagues, that word tomorrow comes. Tomorrow I'm going to, you know, whatever. Send this plague. I'm going to blot out uh, Egypt. Whatever. It was tomorrow. Why the staff? God gave it. Uh, remember with the plagues, how the staff played an important role. Even before the plagues. God told Moses to tell Aaron to throw his staff on the ground, and he did, and he became a serpent. And then he tells Aaron to use his, his staff to turn the water to blood, the water of the Nile. He says, take the staff and, and your hand and, and wave it and make frogs come. And then he says, do it again on the, uh, yet another one, and, and gnats will cover the earth. And then he tells Moses to stretch out your hand toward heaven and to hold out his staff for the seventh plague to bring hail and for the eighth plague to bring locusts and for the ninth plague to bring darkness. And then they come to the Red Sea and they're trapped. There's the Red Sea and there's Pharaoh and his army. 
And God says, take your staff and yarn and hold it out over the sea and part the seas. And he does, and Israel goes through. And he says, take your staff, put your hands up, bring the waters back. And he drowns Pharaoh and his army. But there's no such command here at all. And not a word from God in those verses that I read. No command at all. Moses, Moses has learned to use what God has provided. Have you? We'll return to that. It begs that question, doesn't it? Do you? Do I? To which we'll return. Fourth question. Why the hill? I'll go up on the hill, he said, verses 10 through 12. Maybe to be nearer to God. He was on the top of the mountain where he went to meet God and bring down the law. Other times he goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Or was it so he could see what was going on down on the plain? See the battle. Or was it so... They could look up and see him. Maybe in heaven we'll know. And then the fifth question, what was he doing up there? Well, he's holding a stick up in the air. And that's about all we can say. It's amazing the number of sermons and lessons you can find on prayer from this paragraph in the Bible that has not one single word about the subject in it. Maybe he was praying. He sure doesn't say it. His raised hands could have been directing Joshua and the troops. His raised hands could have been some sort of inspiration to the soldiers fighting down below. Now we won't look at the other hundred ideas about what he may have been doing on top of the hill. This we know for sure. And this is the one thing you can take in the bank. God's people won. God's people won. The sixth question is then, so what? It's a long time ago. It's a long way from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So what? Well, here's what. This is Roman number two. We prevail against our spiritual foes with God's provision and the help of our friends. Let's understand who our spiritual foes aren't. Phil Riken in a sermon on prayer from this passage. He says, Christians think of spiritual warfare too much in physical terms. That is, we think of it in terms of disease and sickness, of wars, uh, of personal troubles, these sorts of things, or even personal conflicts with other people. But he says, the real battle is not visible. The troubles we see in this world are only skirmishes in the cosmic spiritual strife between God and Satan. 
See, the war is raging all around us. But he goes on, he said, but more frightening is the way it rages inside us. Our real enemy is not other people, whether outside or inside the church. Our real enemy is Satan himself with all his unholy helpers. Our real spiritual enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's a biblical statement. You won't find that statement in the Bible, but it accurately sums up what the New Testament tells us our enemies are. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Satan and all his henchmen. And Satan is constantly attempting to steal authority and sovereignty over the world, over our flesh, and our flesh there isn't this body. It's our, our fleshliness, that part of us that it still wants to sin and manages to do so. In Exodus 17, Exodus 17, Malik stands for all of them, for Satan, and for all of his forces and all of his henchmen. At the same time, as we're remembering who our enemies are and who they aren't, remember God has provided you with something. God has provided you with a staff. Down in the next paragraph in, in Exodus 17, it speaks about the banner. The Lord is my banner, Moses said. Actually, it says, the Lord is my pole. That's the Hebrew. <laughs> the Lord is my staff. And from that pole, from that staff, flies the banner. And that's why you can use the language that way. And flying from Moses' banner is the name of the Lord. So that when he raises his banner on the hill, he's raising the name of Yahweh, of the Lord. And in doing so, in raising the name of the Lord, he's declaring his utter dependence upon him. The Lord is all I've got. Another question I can't answer. When he lowered his arms and the staff, and Amalek then took over and started winning and doing well, did it mean that he was dropping his dependence? from the Lord, and does that say something to us, or is that just going way too far? I don't know. But we have a similar staff, don't we? From which flies our banner, the name of Jesus. The banner God gave you when you became a Christian. And there's a sense, there's a sense in which the cross of Jesus is our staff. You know that old hymn, Come brethren, follow where our captain trod, our king victorious Christ, the Son of God. 
led on their way by this triumphant sign, the host of God in conquering ranks combined. This is a sign which Satan's legions fear, and angels veil their faces to revere. Lift high the cross. The love of Christ proclaim to all the world adore his sacred name. Now listen to Paul. As he continues on, having having told the Ephesians who they were battling, then he immediately says, therefore, since you're battling these forces of evil, since you're battling uh, the authorities, since you're battling the powers in heaven, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, which is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no truth apart from Jesus. And you put him on when you became a Christian. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, not your righteousness, not your works, not your goodness, a totally, completely, absolutely alien righteousness that belongs to Jesus. And when you came to Christ, When you were justified in Christ, you received His righteousness. Put it on! And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, which is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What else is the good news? What other good news is there? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. In whom? In what? Faith in faith? Faith in things? Faith in Jesus. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation which comes through Jesus. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in which and by which Jesus is revealed. Take Jesus out of the Bible and you've got nothing. Less than nothing. Pray in the name of Jesus, who himself is praying for you. All times in the Spirit, whom Jesus sent. With all prayer and supplication, for God has given us access to Himself through Jesus. Now, here's a parenthetical note. Open the parenthesis. I didn't say prayer isn't important. I just said it wasn't the only thing going on at Rephidim. 
So still in parenthesis, Paul goes on and says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, keep praying. Pray for each other. Pray with each other. Remember the missionaries. Help one another. As Aaron and Hur did Moses. Interesting that need of one another. Aaron and uh, Moses needed Aaron and Hur. Aaron and Hur needed Moses. They all needed Joshua. And Joshua needed the soldiers. On and on he goes in the church. We need one another. In the church, not just this church, in the church of Jesus Christ, the church universal. Close the parenthesis. Okay? We're back to the sermon. Do you get the picture in all its detail? It's Jesus. That's it. That's the picture. Everything in the Christian life has to do with Jesus. And that includes our spiritual battles that we're fighting day in and day out. Our wrestling with sin, our, our wrestling with temptation, our wrestling with Satan, and all of his friends who seem to camp out sometimes on our souls. God gave us Jesus, and with him, he gave us everything. We win. In Jesus. Just as at Rephidim, God's people win. So we win this war in which we're engaged. Actually, actually, Jesus won it for us on the cross at Calvary. And there the sermon would end, except we still got that other paragraph. <laughs> there, we got to do something with. Let me sum it up. It says, basically, memorials are important in the Christian life. Read it with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek uh, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I don't know what that means. I mean, it, sort of there's some conflict in there, back and forth. When you look at it in the Hebrew, it gets worse. Nobody knows quite how to translate it or to comprehend it, or to interpret it. But one thing we can say, yeah, this much I know, memorials are important. Uh, and they're important in the Christian life. And, and here we can also see three ways in or, to, to mem- memorialize what God has done in our lives. You write it, write this in a book, you speak it, you know, recite it to, to Joshua. And you build a memorial. So Moses built an altar. 
what a lot of the language in that passage, in, in that paragraph actually means, how you get down to it, nobody knows. But we know those things. In other words, record the important turning points in your Christian life. Have you done that? Do you do it? I mean, write it down somewhere. Put it down. Tell others, especially your children and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and build a memorial of some sort. Uh, memorialize them. Celebrate their anniversary, perhaps. Cement them in your mind so that so you can pull them out in the heat of the spiritual battle and take heart. How will you ever count your blessings if you hadn't recorded them? <laughs> well, this is the end of the At the end of the sermon demands a conclusion. So here's the conclusion. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the church's memorial to Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which begins what the church is called Holy Week, its memorial to the last week of Jesus' earthly life. He rode into town on a donkey, and he did so to the accolades of the crowd, accolades which would shortly turn to cries for his crucifixion. Crucify him! Crucify him! And so by Friday, on Friday he would die and be buried. And with him, the hopes of his followers and the hope of the world died. Until Sunday, when he arose, a victor over all his fellows. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will return. This time, gloriously triumphant, and all his majesty and glory and authority and power and sovereignty and righteousness and holiness, all of his deity, he will come our king. to deliver us once and for all and bring us into our promised land there to live with him and with the Father forevermore. God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Let's pray.